Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. Well, we are doing, we've been doing a series all year long on discipleship, which has been really powerful. How many of you have been able to participate in some of that? Yeah, it's really, really awesome. And uh, the, the core team just really prayed into the a theme for the year. I think it's beautiful. And, and you know, in between the, the, uh, the theme of discipleship, we've been doing other things, but we've kept this theme going in discipleship. And uh, this, I, this is the, the last of three uh, themes here on discipleship. And, that, and I get to do uh, the starting one, which is, which is uh, about doing good. <laughs> I sure messed that up. <laughs> you know, you know the, the more you do this, like, you know, by third service, it should be like super simple, but your mind gets like foggy. So um, I, I want, why don't you turn to Acts chapter 10, verse 38, and we're going to start talking about Jesus went about doing good. Verse 38, you know Jesus of Nazareth. How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good. Everybody say, doing good. And healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Let's read it one more time. You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good. Come on, help me. Doing good. And healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I want to talk today about doing good. You know, a, a lot of times, I, I think that there's kind of like, um, th- there's a stigma about our whole movement, like, all you guys do is believe in miracles. And I do think that we, we have felt for 40 years that the Lord wanted us to emphasize this, nothing is impossible with God. That we have, we are, we, we have, we, are, we don't apologize for the fact that we believe God can do anything. And that we want to equip people to do signs and wonders and miracles along with other works. And so I think sometimes people think that we have no value. And I think especially other movements and other churches, sometimes I think on social media, they react to the fact that they think that if you're not doing a miracle, you're not doing anything for God. And yet the truth is, the Bible says that the first thing Jesus did before he did miracles, healing, or signs and wonders, it says he went about doing good. How many of you know when you're doing good, when you're doing good works, you're doing the work of the kingdom? Can I get an amen? amen. That's so spontaneous. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Let's look at this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. This is really interesting. First of all, I want to point out what's been pointed out many times in this verse. It's beautiful, uh, uh, this beautiful revelation that the word workmanship is the word poema in the Greek. We get our word poem from it. And, and uh, I think the Passion Translation actually translated, we are God's poem. So that's just, that's just a beautiful insight there. But did you notice that we were created for good works? Help me over here. Did you notice that the reason why you were created was for good works in Christ Jesus? Try here. 
Did you notice? I haven't even said it yet. Boy, see, by faith, that was uh, the often reading. Did you know that you were created for good works? There we go. There we go. Second point. Did you notice that the good works you were created for were predestined in Christ Jesus? That he actually predetermined the works that you would do before he created you? He created the work? You know, we have this saying. You probably have said it. I've said it many times. God won't give you something harder than you can handle. That's actually not in the Bible. So awesome? No, I didn't say it wasn't true. I said there is no verse that says God won't give you more than you can handle. There's actually no verse that says that. We get the idea, we get that concept by verses like this, in which God says, I prepared the work, then I prepared you. In other words, the reason why I know I can accomplish the work is because first God prepared the work, and then he goes, okay, I'm going to equip you to do the work, therefore you can't fail because you were specifically equipped to do this job. I was created to work. It's a power pause. (laughs) Works for Bill. When I pause, people are like, the scripture is. (laughs) The whole front row is trying to coach me like. Turn to Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. It's something I added in the middle of the night. At 3 o'clock in the morning, I was thinking about my message. Woke up thinking about my message, and I was thinking about this whole thing of good works and that the fact that we were created for good works. Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord, the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, God had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, that word right there, well, is the Hebrew word good works. If you do well, will your countenance not be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire for you is for you, but you must master it. This is a really interesting verse, and I realize it's Old Covenant. I realize that it's before the blood of Christ and so on and so forth, but I think it's really interesting because God is trying to, God understands that Cain is about to kill Abel. What is God's solution? If you do good works, will not your countenance be lifted up? The word countenance in the Hebrew is the word face or facing, and it has this connotation, your outlook on life. God says, if you start doing good works, the way you see life will change. Are you with me? God is saying to Cain, I know you're mad, but if you start doing good works, your whole countenance, the way you see life will change. We think, you know what? If I could get that person to change their attitude, God says, if you can get them to work, they'll change their attitude. I, I, I was raised on welfare, so I, wanna, I really want to honor our country. I, I really am thankful to live in a country that takes care of its poor in my mind pretty well. And I grew up, my father drowned when I was three years old. 
So my mother, I think we were on welfare for probably eight years. So I want to be clear, I am not opposed to welfare. But some of our inner cities, in some of our inner cities, we have funded poverty. We have taken away people's ability to change their countenance. They change their face, to change their outlook on life because we've taken away the ability to work when they were created for good works in Christ Jesus. When I don't do what I'm created to do, how many understand I am not going to see the world the way it is? First Timothy 2.16. See if you've ever seen this before. I never have. All scriptures inspired by God. You didn't read that verse, Valentin? Yeah, I just believe in prophecy. <laughs> Writing a whole new Bible, Chris Valentin. Partially inspired Bible. Your job is to figure out what was it inspired. Another joke. <clears throat> no, listen to where this goes. 1 Timothy 2.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now look at the rest of the verse. So that the man or woman of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Did you get that? Now I realize that there are other verses in the Bible, and I believe the ultimate purpose of reading the Bible is to get to know the author. But this verse says that I read the Bible so that I'll be equipped for every good work. In other words, if I read the Bible and don't work, how many know you've missed the point of reading the Bible? The Bible is, is, is there to, for training, for reproof, for training righteousness, so that you may be fully prepared for what? Good work. Good work. Well, I believe in the grace of God. Grace empowers you to do the work. If you believe in grace that doesn't put you to work, you got a different gospel. <laughs> okay. In Exodus chapter 33, I think it was Paul Manwaring who first brought this to my attention. Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. And God goes, okay, I'll put you in the rock and I'll show you and I'll pass by and I'll show you my goodness. Moses says, no, I want to see your glory. God goes, my goodness is my glory. How many understand that good works are how you demonstrate God's glory? We're going to see it deeper in just a minute. In John chapter 9, Jesus encounters a blind man. He's blind from birth. And the disciples ask Jesus, like, who sinned? Like, did he sin? His parents sin? Like, like, how did his blindness? Why? Why the blindness? What's the, what's the, what's the purpose? And Jesus makes a point. He said, this man is blind, that we do the works of him who sent us for the, as long as it is day. For a night is coming when no one can work. And he, wrote, and he says this, well, I'm in the world. I am the light of the world. And Jesus connects the good works of healing to being the light of the world. Are you with me? Now, that's John chapter 9. In, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, would you turn there, please? Jesus says, Jesus said, you're the light of the world. How many know in John 9, he said, I'm the light of the world. And in Jesus, and, and Jesus, and in Matthew 5, he says, you're the light of the world. Look at this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that it gives light to the whole house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Did you see that? Did you see that Jesus calls good works illuminating the nature of God? Did you see how, are you with me at all? When, when, I was, uh, when, I, when I got saved, when Kathy and I got saved, we got saved in the Jesus movement. I love the Jesus movement, and uh, the Jesus movement was amazing. We saw lots of miracles, healings. We saw lots of salvations, and, uh, and, and, and some people knew the Bible. And <laughs> it was kind of like that. <laughs> you learned discernment because not everything everybody said was actually in the Bible. But it was kind of fun. had a lot of fun. And, uh, and we had a book that came out, The Late Great Planet Earth, and uh, we were taught that the, 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 our motto of that day was come out and be separate. And I remember reading The Late Great Planet Earth, which we all had to read, and basically said, you know, there's the rapture, we were a pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, or pan-trib. You know, it all pan out, trib. <laughs> But it all had one thing in common. We were all studying. We spent all of our time studying seven years. While 50 passed. And I actually had a cassette tape series. You know those cassette tapes? They come in a series. Like there are like six of them. One of the series was how to teach your kids how to not take the mark of the beast. It's very encouraging. Like 10 reasons why you should starve to death before you take the mark. And the whole thing, you want to know why culture has taken such a moral, a, a, a slide towards immorality? Because believers in our generation were taught to come out and be separate. One of the most common phrases in churches, especially during prophetic Conferences, which, by the way, prophetic conferences weren't about prophecy, they were about end times. Was, in the last days, the church is going to get brighter and brighter, and the world is going to get darker and darker. And then when we create eschatologies to make it okay for the world to get darker. Some years later, I started reading the Bible. (laughs) Man, don't mess up a perfectly good theology with... And I read, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Then he starts talking about, don't put your light under, don't put your lampstand under a basket, but put it high so that everyone can see. And I'm like, oh. So I wrote this book called Heavy Rain. I changed the title three times, tried to get someone to buy it. My mama bought two copies, but I gave her the money. (laughs) I even changed the title to How Heaven Invades Earth. (laughs) True story. But Bill wrote the endorsement, so it looked like Bill's book, When Heaven Invades Earth. People are like, I already read that book. I'm not buying that. So (laughs) sales with that title were terrible. But the gist of the book was about, it was called Heavy Rain, actually. And the gist of the book was about how to transform culture. And one of the things we did when we wrote the book, Heavy Rain, some of my interns got together, I asked them to do a statistical studies 
study on American cities. You may have already heard this. And what we found, which was astounding, the opposite of what I thought we were going to find, we actually, I had them actually do a statistical study to prove a point I was making in the book, which was absolutely wrong. <laughs> and here's what we learned. The cities that had the, the greatest Christian church-going population had the worst social statistics in our nation. Now, just so you know clearly what I just said, the more people that went to a Christian church in any given city, the worse off the social statistics were. So as church, Christian church growth, as churches grew in cities, the homeless rate increased, the poverty rate increased, the divorce rate increased. Every negative statistic that they used, 10, neg 10 statistics in cities, grew worse as churches got bigger. Now, I'll bet you the average pastor thinks, boy, my church, my, if my church was 2,000 people, my city would be changed. And I'd propose that your city would be worse off if your church got bigger, according to the statistic. As a matter of fact, when I read that statistic, we did, we did a statistical study of our, we didn't even have to do our statistical study because it came out in a report one month after that, and it said, Redding, California, one of the worst cities in America to live in. And at the time, we were 7,000 people in a city of 89,000. And we were a perfect example of what we had learned statistically, that the bigger your church gets, the worse off your city is. You know why? I call it the huddle effect. Jesus said, don't put your lampstand under a basket and the churches have become baskets, and then we create eschatologies where it's okay for the world to get dark. Jesus said, do your good works in such a way. In such a way, those, those few words, in such a way that people see your good works. How many of you know, if you got your good works in your church, they can't see your good works? I propose the people who need good works, they probably don't even come here. Come on. I'm trying. Now, that's Matthew 5. Now, let me, just, let me just emphasize this one more time. Let your light shine before men that they see, help me, see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Look at the next chapter. Matthew 6, verse 1. Still Jesus speaking. This is a long message. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before them as the hypocrites do. And it goes on like that. And you've read them before. In chapter 5, he goes, do your good works in such a way that everyone sees them and glorifies God. In Matthew 6, he goes, make sure that when you do good works, you do it in secret. I'm like... Am I supposed to like make sure I do them so people see them, or am I supposed to like do them so nobody sees them? And I realize this motive matters. Motive matters. You know, uh, when Donald Miller was here uh, last year, I believe, he did a, he was he was one of our speakers in our leaders gathering. Really did a great job, by the way, profound. If you haven't seen it, I think it's probably still available on Bethel TV. And he told us this this uh, this this thing. He said, every great story always has four characters. It has a villain, it has a victim, it has a guide, and it has a hero. Think about it. 
Every great story has a villain. It's the devil, it's poverty, it's sickness. It has a villain. It has a victim. It could be a person, a city, a state, a country. There's a victim. It has a guide. It could be Daniel, Joseph, Jesus, or you. We'll talk about it in a minute. And it has a hero, God. You say, wasn't Jesus the hero in the story? No, actually, Jesus said, the works I do, they're not my works. They're the works of the Father working through me. I don't, these works, I only work when I see my Father working. I only do what I see my Father doing. These works are not my works. How many know Jesus is the guide in the Gospels? God's the hero. People say, Jesus, you are good. He goes, why do you call me good? Or only my father in heaven is good. What's he doing? He's being the guide. God's the hero. The book of Daniel is a great illustration of this whole thing. There's the, there's the victim. We might say Nebuchadnezzar is the victim in the sense that he's the victim of the demonic spirit. There's the villain, the devil, that's trying to destroy Babylon, trying to destroy Nebuchadnezzar. There's the guide, Daniel. He can interpret dreams and visions and has wisdom. And there's the hero, God. What do I mean by that? When the king goes, Daniel, I want to give you riches and honor and wealth. He goes, hey, hey, there's a God in heaven who interprets dreams. I'm just sending the message. I'm just the messenger. The question is, when Jesus said, do your works in such a way, in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your father in heaven, the question is, are you the guide or the hero? I'd propose I've been both. Turn to Isaiah 58. This is one of the verses I got at three in the morning. Verse six. Now, these Israelites, they're, 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 they're not doing good. You know, God's always got an issue with his nation. And they're fasting, but they got a really bad attitude. And God's like, you think this is the fast I choose? That you would like not eat food? Like you really think that does something for me? Really? So you stop eating food, but you have a terrible attitude and you don't take care of the poor. And then in verse six, he says, let me tell you about the fast I choose. Here's the fast I choose. Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness and undo the bands of the yoke and let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house and when you see the naked to cover him and then not hide yourself from your own flesh? Listen to this. Then you will, your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will spe speedily break forth. I'm gonna read some more in just a minute. I just wanted to point out the people who are tasked with helping the poor, the broken, the hungry, the oppressed. Did you see this? God says, you're going to help them, and then your recovery is going to speedily spring forth. What's the point? They actually need help. Okay, let me... I, I know you're thinking. I, I, I don't, I'm not offended. I'm simply saying, listen to this. Sometimes, everybody say sometimes. Sometimes we get sick or we have a problem and we spend all of our time trying to get well. I said sometimes. And what we really need to do 
is go help someone else get well. And God goes, when you help them get well, you will, your recovery will speedily spring forth. Like, but God, I'm sick. If you help them, you'll get well. And listen to the rest of it. Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he says, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will break forth in darkness and your gloom will be like midday. Did you see how God attached light to good works again? He goes, light, good works, glory. They all go together. When I do good works, God goes, that's light. You are exposing the nature of the Father. Light is, illuminates the way people can see. When you do good works, God goes, see, they're seeing the Father. Now the Lord's your, your rear guard. The things you can't pray about, the things you're, you, you didn't even worry about that are against you, God goes, I got you covered. I got you covered. How did it all start? With good works that you were created for, that I was created for. Listen to the rest of this. And your desire, and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desires in scorched places. In other words, you know we all go through tough times? <laughs> you guys don't. You're like, I'll believe in faith confession. <laughs> yea, when you go through the valley of the shadow of death. Listen, that's a bad translation. Nobody says yea when you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> he says, when you're in your dark season, your scorched places, I will still satisfy you. I will give strength to your bones. I will, you will be like a water garden. And you will be like a spring of water whose waters never fail. He's still talking about when you're in a dark season, when you are, because you did good works to people who couldn't help themselves. God goes, in your scorched times, you'll be like a water garden. You'll be like a spring that never quits. And look at the last verse, verse 12. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations, and you will be called the repair of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. How did all that start? I took a homeless person in. I was needy. I'm like, I don't know where we're going to get the food, but I think we should take Johnny in. God goes, wow. You know what's going to happen? Your recovery. Your recovery you've been praying for for 10 years. Now it's going to speedily spring forth. Why? Because you took care of someone else. You know, I, I, I thought it'd be good to talk about some good work stories. Because most people come here, you know, we have thousands of people who come here and they're like, oh, such a prosperous place. You know, I mean, they believe in miracles and miracles is how they got here. No, actually, miracles is not how we got here. And by the way, I love miracles. Good works is how we got here. We prayed for miracles, Bill's testimony, for years and saw nothing. But you know what never stopped? Good works. I remember Bill and Benny, Eric and the kids, they, when Bill and Benny came to Weirville, they lived in the parish. Yes. No, the parish. It's spelt a little different, but it's the parish. 
I got the front row trying to fix my message. <laughs> You're missing a very good point. Our church, our little church, was on the highway on 299, still there. And behind the church was a parish, parsonage in a pear tree. <laughs> Eric will tell you it had no fence, it had no gate, and the transients came four or five times a day was not uncommon, knocking on the door. And Bill and Benny had no money. So they would offer up their children. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I don't know how many years they lived there. I, I said 10, and Benny, Benny kind of shook her head like maybe 10, because she's in the front row in last service. But a long time, years. They lived there years. And all the years they lived there, I can only remember a few years when all the years they lived there, that they didn't have someone living with them. Often very challenging people who were once transients. Now, Bill and Benny were solving the homeless problem with their 1,200 square foot home. The homeless were moving into it. I remember one fellow and his wife, he, uh, they moved in. It was a very odd couple. She's a very beautiful, smart lady. And she married this, this guy. I think they were in their late 30s at the time. And, uh, and they were living in a camper, and he was about, uh, he was uh, mentally handicapped. He was about 12 years old mentally, but about 35, 40 years old. And, and he married a normal, uh, mentally normal person, and they had children. And he smoked, like, rolled his own, hopefully, tobacco most time. And, and they lived with Bill and Benny for, I don't know, a couple years. And that was an ongoing, constant thing in this little tiny house with three small bedrooms. And they always, almost always had people live with them. We lived with them for six months. At the time, we had two kids and a rat. <laughs> I mentioned the rat because Bill's like, the kids can come, but not the rat. We're like, we have to bring the rat. And then the rat got out for a day. And we couldn't find it. We're all trying to, we were all like, we were all stressed out. Like, Bill's going to be home in an hour. Find the rat. We didn't have miracles then. I, I mean, we prayed for people, but they didn't get well. But what we had is good works. We learned, Kathy and I grew up watching good works happen in the house of our friends because for 14 of those 17 years that Bill and Benny lived there, we were probably in each other's house five, five, four or five days a week. And we watched good works happen, listen to this, in sacrifice. See, part of the challenge is a lot of people want an open door to the White House, but they don't want to open the door to their house. During that time, watching them, it just birthed something in me. Like, do something for God. And I remember having this uh, encounter with the Lord, and he, there was a little town called Lewiston, still there. It's, uh, some of you who are locals may have heard of it. It's about 900 people. It's it's, uh, it's about 15 minutes this side of Weaverville. And we, when Kathy and I first moved to Trinity County, we actually moved to that little town and later on moved to Weaverville. And the Lord told me uh, about 10 years after we were in Weaverville, I'm going to give you Lewiston. Uh, that's a great experiment. It's only 900 people. Like you can't, you can't actually see the kingdom come in a city this size. I'm not sure you're going to see it come anywhere else. 
So um, I said, well, Lord, what am I going to do? And the Lord said, you're going to pray. I said, when and how long? He said, well, as long as I tell you to, and every Sunday night. I want you to go every Sunday night, and I don't want you to talk to anyone, and I want you to go after dark. So I went, 9 o'clock at night, and I, you could walk the entire city. There was 900 people in the city, but you could walk 750 of them. It's a, it's a subdivision. You can walk it in one hour. So I would go, and I would walk every night, usually by myself. One of my kids might come sometimes. And just walk, to, walk the town and then go home. And nothing happened. It wasn't fun. It wasn't exciting. Uh, I was, and I thought it was going to be for a month, and I ended up there for a year. I, I walked in the snow. I walked when it was raining. I just put a, you know, a slicker on and just went out and walked. And, and after a while, the Lord would say, this is the house of a prostitute. I want you to pray for her. And I would pray for her. This is the house of a drug, drug a, a addict. This is a house where they sell drugs. And I, as, as time went on, I could literally walk down the street with my eyes closed and know which house I was in front of by the spirit that was in it. And the Lord was teaching me about realms and metrons. So about a year passed. Yes, a year. It was almost exactly a year passed. And I forget what happened. I think maybe it was uh, an encounter the previous week or something. But 30 people from my church wanted to come. And I, every time someone would come, I'd go, it's not fun. Like, we're not having fun. It's not a Holy Ghost prayer meeting that never stops, like Holy Ghost party don't stop. It's a Holy Ghost party that never started. Okay, we're just praying. They're like, no, no, we want to come. So 30 of them came, and of course, you could walk the whole town. With 30 of them, we walked the whole town in like 15, 20 minutes. So there was a, there was a big gym. I think it was closed for like 50 years. This whole uh, subdivision was built during, when they built the Shasta Dam. And uh, I think Shasta Dam. Maybe it was Trinity Dam, but it was built during the dam project, and uh, they built a gym, and they hadn't opened the gym, I think, 40 or 50 years. And so I said to them, it's, it's a, I got I to explain the night to you. It's a winter day. There's no moon, and there's no lights, right? There's no street lights in Lewiston. And so we get there. It's pitch dark, and I'm like, I, I get them all set up. They're walking, and I go, when we get done, meet me at the gym. And in front of the gym, for maybe like the size of, this sanctuary to maybe the front street, it's a big field with really high weeds, nothing in it. So we get all done, it's 20 minutes past, they're all done, we get to the gym, we start praying. We grab hands, it's pitch dark, you can't, you know, it's that kind of dark where you can't actually see the person you're holding hands with? It's that kind of dark, right? It's, it's, it's wet, it's eerie, we're praying. We start praying, and as soon as we start praying, something from the field goes, Wah! but a hundred times louder than that. And we're in a bowl, so it echoes, right? And like your hair stands up on your head. And one guy goes, it's time for us to go. I said, oh no, let's, I, I am freaking out. You know when you're like, you're like, uh-oh, uh-oh, But you're acting really, you know, bold. So I said, no, no, let's, let's keep praying. They're like, okay. I said, okay, so let's pray. So we, we grab hands, we pray again, and it goes, Whoa! We stop praying, and it stops. We start praying, and it goes, ah! Back and forth like that for like a couple minutes. So I said, okay, let's do this. Let's start praying, and when it gets loud, let's get louder. And let's pray in the Holy Ghost. A, a few of the people got their prayer language that night. <laughs> we grab hands, and we start praying, and it goes, ah! And we're like, yeah, you Holy Spirit, 
Play the blood of Jesus. And our voices are echoing over the valley too, you know. That's like 10 o'clock at night. Yo, Holy Spirit, we play the blood of Jesus. We don't even know what to pray. We're just like, blood of Jesus. Just say Jesus. Yada, shut up, baba. And it's going, what? We're like, yada, yada, Jesus. Literally, five minutes. Can you imagine how long five minutes is when you're doing that? Have you ever prayed a prayer five minutes long? It's just, it's long. And we're praying, and, and your hair, I'm seriously, and your skin, everything's standing. And they want to freak. I want to go too, but I don't want anybody to know. So we, and so after about five minutes, it goes, just like that. And we're like, okay, let's go. The next day, the, the probation department calls me. And they're like, hey, we have 37 kids in Lewiston who are all on probation, juveniles. And we're going to do a training for their parents for two months, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Would you like to take the kids, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and teach them? You can't preach Jesus to them, but you can preach anything else. I'm like, yeah, we'll take them. So we, they said, well, you can have the gym. Well, you we open the gym. Literally, there's dirt in there. We shoveled dirt out the whole day. It, it was wintertime. It's, it leaked like crazy. But we played volleyball and basketball in there. And then we had a 30-minute halftime. And Kathy and me and the kids, we, teach, we taught them about kingdom principles. And we intended to be there for two months. But the group grew to over 120 kids a night. And we were there for five years and won two community awards and saw so many kids come to Jesus. But the most powerful thing that happened is we had this young boy named Eddie. And Eddie wasn't on probation, but Eddie started coming after the group grew, after the probation was over, and we stayed there. And Eddie started coming to church spontaneously. Eddie's mother and father were both drug addicts. And he had come to our house two or three times on a Sunday and had lunch with us. And one day, and the Lord had promised us a fourth child, but Kathy couldn't have any more children. And one day, Eddie, he's 15, he's sitting in front of me, about four rows in front of me. And the Lord says, see that young man? Yes, Lord, he will be your son. So I turned to Kathy, well, I think actually we came home that day, and I said, I had this crazy experience. And actually that day, Eddie was with us. And I said, I had this crazy experience, and the Lord told me that Eddie's going to be our, our son. And she goes, I didn't want to tell you, but three days, three nights ago, I had a dream. And in the dream, the Lord said, Eddie's your fourth child. How many of you know, if we weren't doing good works, we wouldn't have Eddie? Yeah. Kind of funny, I was trying to drink the whole time in the last service, and it wasn't coming out. I was like, this sippy cup's broken. And <laughs> three minutes before the sermon's over, I'm like, oh, you got to push this little thing up. <laughs> hey, it should come with instructions. We, um, there was a, a, a sheriff's deputy who went to our church. His name was Paul. And he did a convalescent hospital ministry. He used to go to the convalescent hospital right before church, the hour before church. And he would just pray and do a service for the people in the convalescent hospital. He's like, hey, you want to join me? So I end up joining him. I'm, I, it turns into five years. We take our kids there. And, 
And, and it's really great practice. We're preaching to people who are, have dementia and can't remember the, your message. And I was listening to Jenny, Jimmy Swaggart in those days, you know, when you're trying to find your style. So I would get my Bible and go, and the Lord says, and then they would pee on the floor. And then, true story, the nurses would come and take them. And there goes my congregation, you know. But anyway, we would, we would get, Paul and I would get together like 10 minutes before we'd go in, and we would just grab hands and pray right outside the Kamala Sambo. It's nothing, nothing special. Just pray for the people before we go in. And we'd be like, Lord, just, just use us today and help us to encourage these people before they pass into heaven. And let us lead some people to the Lord. And so we, we'd always do that. And again, we do it every Sunday. And, um, and so we, we grab hands like we've done for three years at least. And we grab hands and we're praying and Paul's prays first. And when I go to pray, I hear myself say, and you shall be the next sheriff of Trinity County. I had, you know how people say God won't take you over? I, I did not think that. I never had a prophetic word about it. Literally like the donkey talking. I had not premeditated that. And he looked at me, he goes, what did you say? I said, I have no idea. I think I just said, you're going to be the next sheriff of Trinity County. He said, well, I think I should run. So he ends up running for sheriff. I'm giving you the short version of the story. He runs for sheriff, but the incumbent sheriff is running. So in, the rules there are that you have to quit because you, if you're a deputy, you can't run against the incumbent. So he quits. You can imagine it's a big deal. He's running for a year. And Danny Silk and I become his campaign managers, which is wonderful because we never let anything truth is, I never voted before Paul. So, so we, uh, we're all excited, and you know our church is involved, our little Weaverville church with Bill, we're all involved. And, and so we all go down to the precinct watching the results as they come in, and there's nine people running, and Paul takes seventh. Like, we are crushed. Like, this is our first, like, directional prophetic word, but like, it's not just about Paul, it's about prophetic ministry, and we're all, you know, crying, and we go to my house and cry, eat angel cake. <laughs> we're just devastated. And so, that, of course, that's a Tuesday. On Saturday morning, I get a phone call at 6 in the morning, and Paul's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, sleeping. What do you think I'm doing? Sleeping. He said, hey, I feel like I'm supposed to run for sheriff as a write-in. Write-in. I, I, like, I know nothing about politics. Write-in. I, at six in the morning, I say, write in. Does that mean like you're not on the ballot? He's like, yeah, they write my name in. I said, when you were on the ballot, you took seventh, <laughs> not third. He goes, but God said I was going to be the, sh the next sheriff. I said, that was my word. It's like, you know, Scooby-Doo. It was wrong. Flush <laughs> the word. Go on. He's like, will you help me? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So Kathy, Kathy was asleep. She turns like, who was it? I said, it's Paul. Said, what do you want? He wants to run as a write-in. She goes, write-in. Does that mean he's not on the ballot? I said, yeah. She goes, he's crazy. <laughs> Short story. We run. He runs as a write-in candidate. Takes 67% of the vote. The first sheriff in the history of America that won as a write-in and was on the primary and lost. But you know how we got that prophetic word? We were doing good works. 
we were at the convalescent hospital doing good works, and the Lord interrupted the good works with the donkey prophetic word. <laughs> what I'm getting at is a lot of people are like, Lord, give me a word. And the Lord's like, go do some good works. You'll find them there. We have a $148 million building project. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I wake up in the middle of the night with sweats. $148 million. And now we start it. You know, do you see all the lights down there and stoplights and all that? That was like $3 million. Like we are like, we are tethered to the bull and it is pulling us. Like there's no going back now. It's like we're like, you all could leave, but we, we, Eric and I, we are stuck here. I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack, but I've had many. And I, and I think, like, wow, how are we going to build this building, $148 million? And, you know, we still need, like, I don't know, $120 million. And, and, I, and, I, and, and this is the one thing that, I, that brings me hope, and I mean it sincerely. When we started building our building, we did everything we could to put the money we could away before we ever asked anyone else. We gave ourselves... We, each, we put a million dollars to a million and a half dollars a year out of our admin, so we kept our admin tight so we could give to the building. You know, we're like, we're doing, we want to make sure that we are being good stewards before we ask you to. In the midst of all that, just trying to keep things tight and trying to do what we can to make it work so we have extra money to give to the building project and the staff all knows, we've talked about it all the time, our city's in trouble. They're laying off our police officers, we have fires that burns 1,100 houses. And I mean, way early when they laid off the police officers, we got together and we said, we started talking and we're like, how do you build a beautiful building on the back of a broken city? I mean, how do, seriously, like, how do you build a, a beautiful building on the back of a broken city? How can you do that? And we just started talking like, we can't do that. And we took money that we put in, not people gave from the outside, of course. Their money's designated, it needs to go for what they designate for. But we took money that we put in, over a million and a half dollars, and we just began to give it to our broken city. We started saying, let's help the police. We gave, as you know, started out a half million dollars, we gave almost $900,000 to the police, and we raised 1.2 million total. We gave to the fire victims, um, you know, and by the way, more people helped us. It was so beautiful. We gave at least $1,000 to everyone who had lost their home. And we, and we just we were just like, we got to get our city healthy so we can build with a clear conscience because we want that building to be built on good works. And when I lay awake at night, when I wake up in the middle of the night with sweats, I say to myself, God knows where to find people who do good works. God knows how to fund people who do good works. And we may not have, you know, the best strategy to raise $148 million. I don't even want to think about it right now because I've preached this one more time. But I believe that we have the heart of the Father. This is our history. Our history is do good works, I'll find you there. Do good works, I'll do miracles there. Do good works, I'll change that city. And I want to tell you that you guys have done a fantastic job doing good works. Would you all stand? I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you. I was going to read this, but it's too, it's too late in the, in the service. But there's an article in the San Francisco Chronicle, May 21st, 2019. You can Google it. It's still there. Someone just Googled it a couple of days ago. 
And the title is, Is This Heaven or Reading? And it begins with, the Shasta County city of 91,000 is home to a church, Bethel, that has 11,000 members, and they're committed to their community, and a commitment to the community that's so intense, it's almost supernatural. And they go through about 10 of the things that you folks have done through good works that's helping our city. Do your good works in such a way that people see your good works and they glorify your Father who's in heaven. You were created for good works. I was created for good works. Would you put your hand on your heart and repeat this? Lord, I thank you that you created me for good works. In Christ Jesus, which you prepared long before I was born. And Lord, I thank you that you have given me the ability to complete the task that you put in front of me for my life and my purpose. And today I recommit myself to fulfill the purpose of the good works that you pre-prepared for me before the foundation of the world, that I would walk in them, that I would finish my race, and that I would have a crown because I finished the good works assigned to me. And God, I intend to do it with your help, with your grace, and with your people. I intend to finish well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so very much. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelleton.com. Have an awesome day.